How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling, and they said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he, sacrificed, or he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Or on the appearance of his height or his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass by Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shamrah pass by him. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven, other, uh, seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but he's out keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, stand or send and bring him. For we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him to into him. Now he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise up and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks. Will you pray with me? Gracious and holy God, we enter into your presence filled with expectations. May our hearts and our minds and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I remember as a kid, I got those little cardboard giving boxes in Sunday school. Some of you remember that. I don't, we don't do that as often as we used to. And, and it was up to us to put our coins in these boxes, and typically those coins would be collected and then used uh, for missions beyond the local church. I know, I remember so clearly because I, when I would get a nickel or a couple of pennies, I would have to make a choice on whether I was going to use it on penny candy at the corner store 
or put it in the box. I had to make those big life choices when I was a kid. But I knew that way I put it in the box and I took my box fully uh, filled with coins on a particular Sunday, then those coins would go beyond me. I didn't know exactly where. But I began to learn the lessons of generosity through that little cardboard box. This lessons of generosity continued as I watched my parents and my grandparents put things in the offering plate as it passed by. And then as I became a parent, I sought to teach these same lessons of generosity to my kids. And so I would often give them money to put in the offering plate, or occasionally I'd hand them our check and they could put it in the offering plate. And then something happened. Technology caught up with us. And we could now do our giving online reoccurring through our bank. And I was an early adopter of all kinds of technology in my life, and so I began to give to the church in reoccurring gifts much more systematically, much more regularly. But we began to realize there might have been something lost in that because we didn't put anything in the plate. Often that plate would go by and we would put nothing in there. We were sharing this uh, concern with some friends of ours who were taking a course on stewardship. And CW said, oh, well, I have decided that um, I would put a dollar in the offering plate every single week just to teach my children about this giving and how important it is to give when that offering plate goes by. He says, but one day it backfired on me. He says, my girls were in middle school. And uh, as, as was custom, we got ready to go out to eat after church, and the girls were talking among themselves, and then they said, Dad, we don't think we should go out to eat today. And he said, why is that? And they said, because we're poor. Well, what makes you think we're poor? Because you only put a dollar in the offering plate, they said. <laughs> So that particular lesson kind of backfired on him, and sometimes that's the way it is as we pass these lessons down from generation to generation. They have unintended consequences about this gift of generosity. I assure you that those children are now uh, very generous in and of themselves because that generosity lived beyond that dollar in the offering plate. We are in the middle of a worship series on generosity, and we're going to take a look at the lessons that is at the core of generosity how it is that we pass this, this understanding of generosity from one generation to the next. Last week, we took a look at Abram and how God blessed Abram, not only because Abram was this faithful individual that, that obeyed God, but also because Abram then would bless all those who lived around him. So God's generosity blessed others through the generosity of Abram. We also learned about our Decatur Methodist uh, ancestors and how they invested in the lives of the people that lived among them by giving of their time faithfully every single Sunday until we not only uh, had enough people to gather and worship in a space that required more than a home, but also in a space that required building a building. And the faith of those who built this building, which is enjoyed by those of us who never even knew our ancestors. We have been a blessed blessed to be a blessing to others. And so today I want to encourage us to, to take a look at ourselves and examine how is it that we are passing on this gift of generosity to the next generation. 
But to truly understand generosity, we must dig into the core and take a look at the heart of the matter. So in our, in our story about David's anointing, we learn that, that Samuel is stuck. It opens with God encouraging Samuel to move out of this time of grief. Samuel has, has learned to grieve over Saul because Saul has done what the Lord did not appreciate and, and the Lord has taken his favor away from Saul and determined that they need a new king. Now, Samuel never wanted Saul to be a king in the first place, but once he had a relationship with Saul, he fell in love with Saul, and so he was grieving over this turn of events. And so we find that uh, Saul or Samuel is grieving, and he cannot see what might be, but he is stuck in what could have been. And so God says, it is time for this season of grieving to be over, and God is already looking at the future. God says, I have something else in mind. I see things differently than you see them, Samuel. The key in this passage for me today is this word see. It is the, the Hebrew word called raha, raha. And it is more than to see, the physical act of seeing, though it also includes that. It is the act of understanding. That act of, of coming to an insight that is deeper than what meets the eye. In other words, it's about being, seeing the right seeing, the right kind of seeing, the seeing that God brings. The narrator bounces back and forth between what Samuel sees, what humans see, and how God sees them. Samuel sees the anointing of a new king as an act of treason. That is because while if you anoint a king before the sitting king has died, then that is an act of treason. And so Samuel couldn't see beyond that human confine about how kings pass from one succession to another. But God sees. God says, no, it's not an act of treason. It is an act of sanctification. It is an act of sanctification, but here's what I'm going to do. God is generous of spirit towards Samuel. He says, remember that in this act of sanctification, you sacrifice. So take with you a heifer. And that way, when people ask, you can say, I have come to sacrifice. And then we see that Samuel sees uh, Jesse's first son, this, this Eliab, who is big and brawny and bold and has a presence about him. He's handsome. He's commanding of spirit. And, and so Samuel gets stuck in what Saul was, similar to that. And he thinks that surely, surely God wants the firstborn who is a commanding presence in the world. But God sees it differently and rejects Eliab. God explains, for the Lord does not see as mortals see. We see the outward appearances, but God sees the heart the inward appearance of a person. So when God looks at a person, God sees what's going on inside their heart, not necessarily what the world sees about them. We teach our kids about that. The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto us. We understand this character, this will of being generous, but we don't often pay attention to it. 
Sometimes we allow the world to teach us that outward appearances are more important. But even in the midst of all of this, God sees possibilities. Sometimes we miss those nuances. We don't even see these possibilities. What might seem meek and mild and, and under-encouraged, uh, God sees as a possibility. In this, uh, it's significant that the narrator let us know that God's choice was not the oldest brother or the second brother or even seven brothers in, but the youngest. The youngest who's not even present. The kid that is keeping the sheep out in the field. Paul tells the Corinthians, God chooses what is low and despised in this world in order to reduce nothing, uh, nothing, uh, reduce those things that seem to be something down to nothing. And then Jesus turns our world upside down when uh, two of his disciples are bickering over who's going to stand at the left and who's going to stand at the right, and he says, wait a minute, you have it all wrong. The first will be last, and the last will be first. I think God sees things differently than we do because God is generous of spirit. You see, when David is anointed in the presence of his brothers, God descends upon David mightily. And the Spirit enters David for the rest of his entire life. Not because David is so pure of heart, though he is, but because God is so generous of spirit. Even in those and that which is weak or vulnerable, unseen as worthy, receives God's spirit. I imagine that scene when Samuel says, do you have another? He says, yeah, but he's out keeping the sheep. Well, go get him. Well, you know what, Samuel? He's way out there, and it might take me a while. And he says, well, we're not even going to sit down until you get him back here. And so they go and they get David, and you can imagine the scoffing of the brothers. And then... Samuel anoints David right in front of the others. Now, we're not sure what the others understand this anointing to be because we're not told in the text, but we're told in the very next chapter that when David shows up at the battlefield and all the brothers are there, and he wants to know about this giant Goliath, we know that the brothers scoff at him and send him home. They try to send him home saying, you don't belong here. You're too young. You're a kid. They have not yet learned what God sees in David. But when David arrives, here is what is interesting to me. He is not only young, he is not only seemingly weak and ready, but he has beautiful eyes and he's handsome. I think there's something important about that. Something important about that understanding that when God sanctifies, when God's grace is put upon the one who seemingly is weak by worldly standards, they become handsome to the world. They become attractive to the world. I think about the way that I misread the world and how this scripture te uh, speaks to me how sometimes I walk past those in the world that I do not see. It's as simple as going to the checkout counter at the grocery store and the clerk behind the counter 
tries to greet me and I dismiss the greeting or I'm too busy, or I fail to look them in the face and in the eye and understand them, knowing full well that this person works a long, hard shift only to go home, sometimes with a paycheck that is less than sufficient to feed her family. And so what I'm reminded when I recognize that sometimes I don't see people around me is that God doesn't take that away from them. But it is only my heart that is robbed of God's grace in that moment. And so I must learn to lead into this heart, this heart. I think God is telling us that, that uh, the text actually says here, this, it doesn't call um, into question anything about the attractiveness of David, even though uh, God has called that out in Samuel's understanding. The text is challenging us that there are times when we need to make our programs and our communities and our worship attractive to others, but not just for the ability to be attractive and to get lots of numbers. It's really about what's behind it. It's about the heart. And so I was thinking about the ways that we engage in worship around us. And recently I talked with a young man that talked about how they, they came to Pecan Street Mission and uh, they found the community to be really friendly and wonderful and welcoming. But here's what he said. He said, it wasn't just friendly. I've been to friendly places before. I found this place to be authentically friendly. And last Christmas, I was at our community, downtown community candlelight worship, and there was a man there standing at the back. He said he'd been there uh, for the last couple of years and, and that he loved to come there, though he worships someplace else. He says, I like to come here because I feel accepted exactly for who I am, and your table is open. I don't feel judged. It's the heart. It's the heart behind the worship. It's the heart behind the friendliness. And then I remember a person that began to worship with us and sat right back there for the last five months of her life before she died all too young to cancer. And as I was visiting with her, I said, what brought you to this church? She said, I found a place where I felt at home. I found a place where people circled around me and didn't see my, my scarf wrapped around my head but saw me, a place where I felt safe and secure. It's in the heart, friends. It's in the heart. So as I think about what happens to our hearts when we have them in the right place, is that in our, in our ability to communicate and be with one another, it is God's grace at work within our heart that changes anything into something that is attractive to others. And so our challenge in this season of generosity is to get our heart in place, to see things as God sees them, to do things the way God does them, with a sense of grace and blessing to the next generation. Thanks be to God.